uh, music plays that uh, can only mean one thing. Once again, Tim O'Connor and uh, Howard Glassman will uh, record the conversation they were going to have anyway. <laughs> That's what we should call it. Hold on, let me, uh, let me turn that down because you can't if I, uh, there we go, let me turn the swing thought. There we go, there's the theme. Yeah, the, the conversation we were already having, <laughs> that, uh, and that we were going to have anyway, as Tim just said to me before uh, we hit record, he goes, why don't we just uh, start the show then, if we're going to have... Oh, this show started. <laughs> yeah. We having lunch and thinking, wow, we like a lot of the same stuff about this mental part of the game, so why don't we just record it? <laughs> Uh, welcome to Swing Thoughts. That's the name we came up with because we were always, uh, like a lot of you, two guys are always searching for the right swing thought that would translate to the more reliable swing that would one day make us happy. Exactly. Uh, but we found a lot. Achieve lo- our dreams. Achieve our dreams. <laughs> and we found that to be a fool's game. And uh, so we came together. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, we're recording this on the 22nd of February. This is uh, brought to you by TaylorMade Still. We're in negotiations. And uh, Adidas. And again, negotiations continue. Are we are we sponsored yet by Tour Striker? Or have we got those? Did you get your swing ball thing in the mail yet? Well, I got my swing ball, my friend. Or the, um, that's not the name of it. He's going to get, he'll... What is it called? It's called, uh, it's not the swing ball. Is it the swing ball? No, I don't know what it's called at all. <laughs> they wish... can't be our official sponsors yet then. <laughs> well, no, I, I would say that if they were going to be our sponsors, they'd want, they'd want us to have to the name of their product. <laughs> Probably. It's not, what is it called? Now you, I got to go to their site, Tour Striker, Smart Ball. Smart Ball, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Tour Striker, Smart Ball. Hey, um. I do want to, uh, before we start the show, and I didn't run this by you prior, but I, I did I did oh. remember I was going to do this. Oh, okay. I'm ready. Well, no, this is just, um, you, you've been in the golf business uh, a long time. I've been around the golf business and I guess in it for some time. And, and it's such a great community of people. And here's what I'm leading to. I'm leading to the fact that when I was in the Turks and Caicos last week, we're gonna, I want to talk about some of the golf, but I have to tell you the golf course I played um, is called the Provo Golf Club. It was recommended to me, and uh, just very briefly, Tim, you know, a lot of those island courses are Bermuda grass, and they're, you know, they're not that well kept, and, uh, and, and a lot of times for northern golfers, you go down there and that Bermuda is tough to, it's very grainy in the greens and it's tough to maintain. And uh, what they did down there in Provo is they redid the golf course with uh, Pass Palum. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pass Palum Platinum. And what it does is it, first of all, the surfaces are pristine. And the greens, now this may have led to some good scoring for me, but the greens were very, very, very good. The best I've played, excuse me, the best I've played in an island environment, hands down. They all rolled like, you know, I was at the National a long time. They rolled like the everyday national speed. Very good. Wow. Easy. Yeah, really pristine. Anyway, the reason I mentioned the golf business is I sent a note to the director of golf. And I said, I do this golf podcast. Would you be interested in maybe giving the uh, the old man a break? You know, because the uh, I'm on holidays and, you know, I have to buy rental. I get rental clubs. And I'm I, getting close to a fixed income. I, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. And I'm anyway, using balls from the ball jar. Exactly. Anyway, he couldn't have been nicer. And uh, and I'm just getting the – the guy's name is Dave Douglas. And uh, he – I told him who I was and what I did, and he said, not only am I going to give you a break, I'm going to make you an honorary member for the week. Perfect. So I got to tell you, as an honorary member of the uh, Provo Golf Club, I couldn't recommend it enough. Uh, the people there, all Canadians, There's oh, nice. um, there was Dave and his uh, his staff, Sean and Ashley. Ashley's, uh, they're all just just a wonderful group of people. And I played the golf course twice. And later on in the podcast, we'll uh, tell you about a couple of the rounds. But I just wanted to get that out of the way. Not, not out of the way. Just to tell you that they, you know, as somebody that's had people do solids, like, you know, for each of us, including TaylorMade and Adidas, it was just a really nice solid for me. That's all. 
I, I, I just learned a new word, a solid. That's like you did something nice for me, like you gave me something um, for a discount or even gratis. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Yeah, it was great. Right. It I'm was, always learning. Well, well, here's a neat thing that may, people may not know about, I think, is that I th- what makes past Palum um, – so I know enough about grass to be That's a little right, you, dangerous. You talk. You're the agronomy guy. Well, I taught communications in yes. the surfgrass program at Guelph, and I've always been interested. When I was doing, you know, hardcore journalism in the trenches of golf writing, uh, I was always interested in uh, superintendent stuff. And the interesting thing about past Palum is that it largely it's you. Um, the water stuff is got salt water in it, so you can you can use salt water. So it's perfect for these. Uh, well, that's places. what they did. Yeah, they, because they, otherwise you've got to use um, treated water or all that. Which so this is past Palum is very environmentally well, that's responsible. They, uh, you know what? That's I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's one of the reasons that they did it was because of you know being able to access salt water, which they're surrounded by. But I, and I don't know, um, I can only tell you from a player standpoint, you know, Bermuda's tough. You know, that's why some on the PGA Tour, traditionally, there have been some people over the years that just didn't play well, you know, and avoided some of the Bermuda courses because, you know, they always talk about, oh, so-and-so grew up playing these, these type of greens. And I think it's an advantage because when I'm down in Florida, it always takes me a couple of days to get used to chipping and, and reading the grain and knowing that that has an influence. But this past Palum, I'm, when I say the National, I played 36 holes in this golf course, and uh, the putts just roll like, like honestly, like the National, like Weston, like St. Thomas, like that style of of roll where you know if you have a 10 footer if you get it started it's going to go it, it, it's going to go where you hit it right it, it was really something and and a very challenging golf course for but but good for all levels um the week two weeks before i was there gary woodland was playing he uh, stopped he was in the uh, in the islands with some friends played the golf course Stephen ames is there this week like it's got a real reputation david Faraday is the course wow. am, is the course ambassador and uh, and now I'm also a course ambassador. <laughs> cool. And I like and I like just saying Turks and Caicos. It yeah, sounds like a, it sounds like a hipster pair of like jeans or something. Yeah. You like my new you like my new Turks and Caicos? They fit my butt real nice. Okay. Yeah, we can have a discussion about the fact that uh, listen, I'm. I know you don't have one. I don't have a butt. But, yeah. <laughs> I did. I, I, it's funny. I did that joke on stage last night, and I said, I don't think you people, because I, I, I talk about getting older and losing my ass. I said, I don't think you people realize. Like, and I turned around, and I've just basically got like a sort of an outside diaper thing going on. <laughs> it, just, it just looks like I've just got extra. I say, you see all this material back here? That's where my butt used to be. What did Nick Turkilio describe it as? Frog as ass. I have frog ass. It just becomes like this sort of thing that's kind of like yeah. caves in under you. Yeah, amphibious. Yeah, that's great. It's I, real. You, on the other hand, you and my... It's funny because you, my podcast partner on the golf side, and Fred of the Humble and Fred show, also are men in their 60s that have retained their butt. And well, thank uh, you. Thank it's, you. It's I unfair. That. It's unfair for those of us that have... Sadly, hey, those hey, days I'll are gone. Hey, you know... I'll have you know, I worked at this. I, so I do glute bridge. When I go to the gym, I do glute bridges every yes, time. Very nice. I, I do uh, squats, uh, deadlifts, you know. Well, I've started doing that. I've started doing, um, well, I, I do bridge. Excuse me, I just burped. I do bridge in uh, yoga, but I've started doing um, squats because um, my buddy uh, Kirk at Golf and Body NYC has given me a program that includes doing right. doing my butt. Kirk Adams. So maybe, so maybe someday you'll be reunited with your butt, <laughs> and it'll be yeah. it'll be really happy. It, it, oh, we could yeah. we, we could write a, a Netflix show around it or something. Reunited with my butt, the humble Howard story. <laughs> <laughs> Great, that's super. That's where we're at now. Okay, Boy, we're, hey. we're all grown up. We're all grown up talking about this stuff, aren't yes. we? Yes. Here we, we are. Go. Combined age a thousand, and we're talking about Howard losing his. Can you hear this music now? Here we go. This is me and my butt doing a duet. 
reunited, and it feels so good. Um, okay, let's talk golf. It's the uh, the reason yeah. the reason I mentioned uh, what day it was uh, is to give people some perspective when they download the show. This is the uh, Friday second round of the WGC uh, Mexico Championship, and just after whatever that was at Riviera last weekend, and a couple interesting takeaways. Uh, you know, let's start anywhere you want to. There's Pete. There's shorts. There's slow play. There's the Kuchar situation. Why don't you start with that? Because you brought it up. You said you wanted to talk about Matt Kuchar. Yeah, that was certainly very, very interesting. And uh, the reason I I was particularly interested in that is that I spent um, a number of years in the communication side of the business, dealing with uh, public relations. And you really you want to pick a case where uh, a guy and his team, Cooch and whoever his advisors were, talk about blowing it. They they blew it hugely. Even when they went into damage control, they were damaging their damage control. Um, I just don't know how how can you be so tone deaf to you win a tournament? I think he won 1.3 million first tournament he won in four years. You have this. His, his Mexican caddy, yes, it was not his regular caddy. And yes, they had an agreement that it would be, I think if, if they would top out at 5,000. He wins 1.3 mil or around that. He's won something like 48, 40 something million in his, in his career through winnings and endorsements. And he, and, and so the word leaks out that the caddy is not, you know, 5,000, really? You just won this? And, Cooch goes, well, this is that was our deal. This is a non-story. Sorry, dude. It was a huge story. And they finally capitulated and and gave him, I think, what was it, 50,000? Yeah, I think 15? in the end it was 50,000. Yeah, so, you know, um, I just thought it was really interesting. And Cooch was getting it. In the first round, uh, the fans were, like, all over him. And pretty interesting to see how – you know, you know the guy Cooch, who people always yelling at. You know, Mr. Popular, Mr. Nice Guy, Smiley was just getting hammered. So, I just I just found that it, it was just uh, really kind of a a weird and kind of sad thing that um, a man of of Cooch's um, experience and, and it just kind of like. I found it to be kind of a sad thing to watch. It it had to go to that. Well, that's I'm done. I'm, no. I was going to say that's interesting. It's not my perspective on it. Um, maybe mine won't be the popular one, but I, you know, yes, he may have it, from a PR standpoint. I, I I feel that first part of what you said. I feel you're right that they mishandled it, and it could have been, you know done in a different way what i'm kind of getting at though is you know matt kuchar for most of his pga career including the little weirdness with his dad at the uh 97 masters when his father when his father was caddying for him i don't know if people know the story but other than that matt kuchar i think has comported himself you know in a pretty good way for most of his PGA Tour career. He's just one of those guys that, you know, I get the impression, and I, I haven't met him, but I've been around him a little bit, that he's just a decent guy. What I am what I don't like about what you said, not that it comes from you, but here's this guy. He made a mistake. And, yeah, he, he, he maybe he screwed up how he handled it, but we're all so quick and as um, – as his caddy said, because I was watching the broadcast last night at the end of this, you know, mammoth day of mine, and um, I watched Cooch for a couple holes, and to tell you the truth, the reaction the crowd was giving, and by the time he was four or five under, it seemed like they were sort of okay with him again. My yeah. point, though, is his caddy, John, uh, whatever, uh, he said, come on, you know, look at the man you're talking about here. I mean, the man has been a pretty good guy. And it's more about our society and how we're so quick to get on the, you know, how dare you, you know? Well, we all act inappropriately at times. I mean, I, you know, we all have. Anyway, that's my comment on it, is that it's it's too bad that we just couldn't go. Oh, that's too bad, and and he's corrected it now, and he's not a bad guy. 
No, he's none of that. Yeah, no, know, I, so I, so that's what I think. I think he's. I think that yeah, he made a mistake. Absolutely, he did. Um, it's no. I, I would say this is a a, a mere because. I think they did the right thing. He admitted a mistake. He rectified it. It's a mere blip on his record. And I don't think Fucci, it'll stick to him. No, it won't. And, and But, you know, it was um, – I found it interesting that I just turned on the TV – gosh, I think it was Saturday last week just to for, you know, take a break from something I was doing – and they immediately went to Faldo and Jim Nance, and they went full on to this thing for like ten minutes. And it, it you know, I, I thought it was very interesting that that it was at that level of they felt this was news, this was serious well, stuff to look if at. If I may interject, it's news in the world of golf because absolutely, this, you know, yes. in, in in the in the real world, it wouldn't even be a story. But in the golf world, it's you know, it's what's it's what passes for. You know, a big deal. But in actual fact, you know, sure, he won 1.3. So, yes, the caddy should probably get more than the 5,000 they agreed upon. But what is the story? Is it because is it that Matt Kuchar bristled a little bit and said, well, well, that was kind of the deal? Or is it because it was bungled or it was because he only offered him five grand? The reason PGA Tour caddies get a percentage of their people of their man's winnings is because of the all the other weeks and years of slugging it out you know being there at six in the morning on the all those things that's what they're getting it for they're not getting it for that particular week so david ortiz caddied for matt kuchar who happens to be an elite pga tour player who happens to win for the first time in four years but does he deserve the same as Cooch's regular caddy, and I would say no, but... I agree with you. But, I absolutely agree with you. But he gets... He should have, just as a gesture, should have gotten more than five grand, but again, what's the story? Is that... Is it the way that Kuchar reacted is the story, or is that he didn't pay him enough? To me, the story... To me, what... It, it, my sense of it, my feeling around it was, okay, here's... So, Matt, you're Matt Kuchar. Um... Gosh, fifteen grand, fifty grand. I mean, it doesn't make any difference in your life, but to you had an opportunity to 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 in essence change the life of someone who who um, would have nowhere near the opportunities that you do, and and it was part of a, a magical week. So so why not share a little bit of this? Yeah, uh, absolutely. To me, that that was the blind spot. Is just like. You know, why not just do something nice? Yeah, absolutely. And that's as simple as it gets for me. Yeah. Um. But again, and then so now he's he's in Mexico this week, and I didn't see the first part of the round. I I sort of they do the rerun at on, at uh, night on. Um, oh, by the way, I've started watching PGA Tour live, and it's available in Canada. I didn't realize it was through just um. Well, you can get it through NBC. Uh, sports, but you can also get it through PGAtour.com. And I didn't—I oh, okay. thought it was an American-only thing, but Canadians can get it. Anyway, uh, that aside, so I'm watching the broadcast last night. I knew that Kuchar had a good round. I think he finished five or six under. <clears throat> Pardon me. And um, he seemed to be... Uh, I was impressed by the fact that with all this attention, he was able to just play a game of golf and, uh, you know, play pretty well, actually. Yeah, well, he's a vet. He, I, I think that what makes PGA Tour players the top ones, they're resilient. Yeah, they can get through. They, whatever happens, it doesn't define them. They move on. It's just you know a hill or valley, and they just deal with it. Okay. Uh, speaking of the PGA Tour, they've uh, allowed like in 2016, the European Tour started allowing their players to wear shorts in uh, practice rounds and pro ams. When I was there watching the Scottish Open in 2017. I uh, I remember it was a pra- I think it was the practice round, and uh, there was Darren Clark wearing shorts. He's a big man. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a he's a big man, Darren Clark. And um, now his calves were not as impressive as Phil Mickelson's, which apparently have <laughs> Phil Mickelson's calves. If you haven't seen them, have their own Instagram account now. That's right. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think they have a, like an endorsement for some nutritional. For sure. <laughs> um, I, 
I got no. You're a coach of a college team. Do your kids uh, wear shorts in competition, or are they uh, are they allowed to, or or just Absol- to practice rounds? Absolutely, they wear shorts. For so, what sure. do you think of that? Oh, I, I, it's funny. I really, really, you could do a comedy routine around this. The controversy about wearing pants. Oh my gosh, yeah. it's so silly. Um, I, I do. It's funny. I'm. I'm a traditionalist. I this is sounds silly, but I like it in the early and late part of the year when I get to wear pants. <laughs> you know, because I think they look good. It makes me feel more professional. There you go. Absolutely, I don't know why that is. I do. I no. feel like I'm wearing like I have this thing. Like when I play tournaments, I like it. I like wearing pants in tournaments because it makes me feel like it's something special. Absolutely, and you know what? That's part of the fun of of uh, of golf. It's sort of what uh, I think it was my dad had this phrase. You know, you're a vision of sartorial splendor. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they used to use words like this is like you, you'd be careful of your you'd be mindful of your deportment. You know, so so golf professionals shine shoes, a tie all the time. So there's a tradition in golf of of, you know, looking good, looking sharp and all that. So so I get that. So um Gosh, the more I think about this, the more I'm okay. Like for long pants during a tournament, that looks good. But yeah, I let them wear shorts for gosh sakes in a in a practice round and pro ams. And you know, one of the things I heard, that. and I don't know if I don't know if I relate to it, but again, they're trying to grow the game. They're trying to make it more approachable or relatable or any others of those bulls. Um, and I think Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, seeing, you know, Mickelson or Tiger or Justin Rose wearing, you know, cool shorts. I think, you know, because it's what most people wear when they play golf. That's right. But, but yeah. I don't want to see them wearing shorts in the U.S. Open. I don't think they ever will. I'm with you on that. I like I like the fact that there's a, a certain style to it. Um, yeah. But that being said, you know, it's kind of cool. I say walking around and seeing, you know. At the Scottish Open that week, I think I saw, again, Darren Clark, a few other big-name players wearing shorts. It's fine. It also, to me, it also underscores the fact that this is, this is whether some people will buy into it or not, uh, this is athleticism. And they look more like athletes. Now, Darren Clark maybe not look like an athlete or even John Rahm or – or uh, gosh, who was the, remember who was the guy from Wisconsin who ate the hot, <laughs> ate the hot dogs? I can't remember, but anyways, like kind of big no, guys in mean. shorts. Yeah. yeah, big guys in shorts. Maybe not so much. Maybe that speaks more about our uh, I don't know our phobia or how we relate to big people in this world. But um, yeah, the shorts thing is great. You know, it, it's funny. Back to uh, Phil Mickelson's calves, and uh, I think a couple days ago when I first saw them. I'll tell you the truth, I wasn't surprised, and, and here's why. Because, first of all, Phil Mickelson, if you were standing next to him, he's a lot bigger physically imposing than you would imagine because he's a big guy. He's just big everywhere. You know, right. he's tall. He's he's like 220. But I um, I was uh, – I hosted the – I couldn't tell you the year, the 1998 – I hosted a couple Skins games. One of the Skins games I hosted was the one that Weir won in uh, Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. It was Weir, David Duvall, Fred Couples, and uh, I'm going to say John Daly, but it, it could be somebody else. I'll remember that in a minute. My point is, after the thing was over, Weir won, and we all went, the crew, and because I was working for the same company as all these guys, and we all went out for beers, and Couples showed up wearing a pair of shorts. And I'm going to tell you, he's the same, Couples and I are the same height and fairly similar in terms of weight and build, except his calves were bananas. I just, I remember thinking, oh, that's why he hits it so far. Because he does. He really. exactly right. His legs, and you you just mentioned John Rom. John Rom, Phil Mickelson, Fred Couples, their legs were so big and strong. I mean, a lot of, a lot of. A lot of us would like to have that club head speed, but it's coming from their trunks. And that's why John Rom, you look at his, you know, you're talking about, you know, he's the opposite of me. He's got more ass than he needs. He's got, he's got like, and I say this respectfully. Surplus, surplus he's, ass. He's got like a hockey player's ass. You know, that exactly, kind of thick, exactly. thick hips, thick ass, thick thighs. I mean, there's a lot of power in that. And couples, when I saw him, back to couples, when I saw him in shorts, I was like, oh, I get that now. I see that. Very yeah, strong. well, you look at uh, exactly right. Where does that power come from? I mean, when I saw that 
uh, Phil's uh, uh, calves, I went, yep, that's one reason why he hits it so bloody far. Yeah. And that's one of the things that – that's why this focus on fitness now is um, really – helping people understand where power comes from and, and why it's not all about, um, you know, having a big upper body and all of that, but having a really solid trunk and hips. And that's why there's so much focus on things like, yeah, guys doing, um, all kinds of different, usually with weights to, to build up your, uh, your glutes, your hamstrings, your quads, your core, all of that. You, but I just want quick anecdote. I remember, um, gosh, it was, uh, about maybe 15 years ago, I played in a pro-am with Wendell Clark in Muskoka. And it was during the um, Stanley Cup finals. And we're watching it. He's telling me about what like Dave Andrichuk and Matt Sundin. And he says the advantage they have is that they're tall and they have these big, long sticks. But they also have these huge butts. And so all they would do is that they just sort of like you get in the corner with them and they would just bend over. And their stick would be so the puck would be about twenty yards away from you, but they have this big butt, and you can't get <laughs> you can't get around it. That's right. Well, I, you know, I'm gonna I'm not gonna lie to you. I've got butt envy because I used to have a butt. Um, I play golf with Wendell as a, a Club Link ambassador. Uh, some from time to time, I'm asked to uh, host the pro am. Uh, I played Wendell pretty recently, last couple of years, and Wendell has two speeds: he either shanks it or he hits it three twenty. Exactly. Like he is so strong. Like his golf swing is so weird. Uh, maybe Shank is an, a, an exaggeration. But he does either hits it sideways, or when he catches it, it's pretty remarkable. Like yeah, gets- I used. To, I, I was always amazed at the the speed he generated with his hands. From I think like about four o'clock to eight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like- There's not a lot of swing. He does. He, he he just has. But again, it's it's to strength. Um, we got to be mindful because I know you got it. I just want to be mindful that we're going to get to the uh, Mike Hebron uh, dissertation. At mm. some point, we're going to talk about this book the that, paradigm I, shift. The, uh, that I've fallen in love with. <laughs> uh, what about J.B. Holmes? Now, speaking of a guy that can hit it a long way, and I didn't see all of the last few holes where the lead went from Justin Thomas to J.B. Holmes, but it was a long day. And I don't think, like, there was a tournament where Justin Thomas had the lead but, you know, I don't think he gave it away as much as J.B. Holmes prevailed under, you know, difficult conditions. I don't, yeah. think, it's, I don't think it's one of those tournaments where Justin Thomas is going to go, oh, I blew it. You know, after playing 33 or whatever holes and, you know, three days in a row of slugging it out, I think he just ran out of steam like a lot of those guys did. And J.B. Holmes just played sort of decent, steady golf. But the big story about J.B. is the slow play thing. Tim O'Connor, thoughts and feelings. Well, full marks for for JB Holmes for for winning. Um, and it, what I like the fact is that he can win with like a not very attractive golf swing. <laughs> One thing I notice is that his left foot goes from address position to moves to about a foot behind him. It's yeah. really weird. Watch it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, decent guy and all of that stuff, but he is part of the problem in golf is that he's just too pokey and this the sense of like just uh over meticulousness um drives me crazy but i think the key piece is is that he just doesn't seem to be ready and to me and that's that's what ready golf is about you know is is just be ready when it's your turn so when you get to the green Start to do your walk around, your investigation, your checking things out while other people are are putting, and then and then when it's your turn, it maybe you need to take a few more seconds to uh, to survey the landscape, whatever. But then be ready and play. That to me is the big problem: is just not being ready, um, waiting too long to get into his process. Uh, and I really think that we're at the stage with golf. Uh, well beyond, actually, where the tour has to start uh, finding guys. Do you know, if I may, just quickly before I forget this fact that I heard yesterday, that do you know how many times in since 1994 the PGA Tour has actually handed out a penalty for slow play, like an actual two-stroke penalty? Do you know how many times? 
I'm going to say one, but you had your fingers at two, two before he started talking. Yes. <laughs> so you kind of gave it away. Yeah, two times. Um, they warn guys. They they put them on the clock. Even at uh, the Mexico tournament I was watching last night, that one of them, uh, the, the the kid who's from America but grew up in Mexico, answer I believe Abraham answer, great golfer. Anyway, they 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 told him that he was they had gotten a hole behind him. Whatever it is, the point is they don't find they don't give out two stroke penalties. JB, I couldn't agree with you more. JB. From once he gets his routine, he's fine. Once he gets over the ball, he pulls the trigger quickly. It's almost like he's not ready to start his process, as you said, until it's his turn. The actual rule states like this. Basically, if there's two of us playing, the clock starts when we get to the first ball, whoever's away. So you're away, and so while you, so you have 35 seconds, I think, and I have... 45 because I'm after you. But whatever it is, it's less than a minute. Mm-hmm. Once you get to your ball, you're supposed to be under a minute to hit it. The problem with those guys is they're a minute 20, a minute 30, a minute 40 over every shot. And I don't, you know, I don't know. I've been listening to a lot of PGA Tour radio this week, Hank Haney and Katrick and McInnes, and they're all talking about the same thing we are. And I don't really know what the solution is other than to say golf's a four hour and 30 minute sport. And when we get to that point, it's over. You know, I mean, other sports have, you know, sort of a, I mean, I know baseball has no limit, but there has to be a limit at some point because it becomes less attractive to watch, I think. You're absolutely right. It's about entertainment. Yeah. That's why, that's why we're watching it. And all sports are, are taking a, a harder look. Like the sports, like, I don't think in hockey, hockey's not an issue. Uh, sports like that where the way the play clock works but in uh, things like football and certainly baseball they're taking looks at how do you get this going in a in a more brisk manner because it just bogs it down um sitting and watching guys with their arms uh folded watching other guys putt and then ponderously you know walking around mm-hmm. and take that's just not a lot of fun no so so from from that standpoint, but I think that you know this could fit into the broader theme of how do you make the game more fun, more entertaining, more approachable. You know, even like the long pants thing. You know, the traditions around the game. I think that if because the game is not growing, and there's a lot of golf operators who are quite worried, quite frankly, that 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 you know particularly with younger people and the fascination with technology people are not as active that there's gonna be less people playing golf and golf courses will close and all of that so that sounds like you know um you know the road to (laughs) hell thank you golf apocalypto do you have any exactly exactly that's what i feel like (laughs) do you want to describe uh, the mad max golf future where it's all just dust and you know people riding on the front of golf carts you know chasing people i don't know I get this thing of uh, Mel Gibson <laughs> in right. the Scottish Tartan, uh, but no, what, <laughs> yeah, I think we just have to keep this game moving forward and being fun and entertaining, and rather than rather than this ponderous thing where you have to make sure your I don't know your hat's on forward and your shirt is tucked in. I well, don't you know, know. They, I I've read recently they've done some studies that. Um, Getting to your ball and hitting it quickly versus getting there and standing around thinking about it for a long time actually produces better results. So tour players aside, now that we maybe, uh, you know, transition or segue into the swing thoughts portion of today's show, you know, there's there is really um, I'll just say this. I'll start by saying the more the more you can see golf as play the more you're going to likely play it better, but better not being the outcome, but more about enjoying the playfulness of it. You know, and I, and I mean, what we're, what I wanted to bring up, I don't even know how to start, but it's not like I read Michael's book and decided, oh, all of a sudden, this is how I think. It's Michael how, Hebron. Michael Hebron. Yeah. Uh, what I said to Tim, Swing Thought Nerds, is when I, I called Tim, Early in the week, I said, you know, I wish I want to get Michael Hebron back because when we had him on that day, full disclosure, we interviewed three different people on that day. I think it was Carl Morris, Michael Hebron and um, Marty Chuck, Martin Chuck. So it was a you know, it was a lot of stuff going on. And 
And the person I knew the least about was Michael Hebron. You had heard of him, and and I, you know, sort of sort of skimmed his stuff. But in the weeks after we had Michael on the show, I started watching his seminars. You know, talks he's given to, you know, PGA Tour uh, get-togethers, whatever. What do they call it? summits? Teaching summits. Teaching yeah. summits. Thank you, sir. <laughs> One of those things. Just fill in the words. And I, so I, I, start, I started watching those to see what this guy was all about. And then when I went away on vacation, I thought I would download one of his books and have a look at it. And, and, I'm, and I'm telling you, I'm three quarters of the way through. And the reason it's taking me so long is because every page is something like, oh, that's why all this is bullshit. Um, that so would be the Play Golf to Learn Golf book? Play Golf to Learn Golf basically has synthesized for me a lot of the stuff you and I have now been talking about for over three years, which is, and I'm the worst, you know, I'm, I'm, listen, no one's a better example of how not to do this than me. No one has tried harder to put my golf body in a position to hit perfect golf shots than I have. But my progress over the last couple of years has been because I've been trying to learn to leave that behind. And I can tell you, so many things in the book resonated with me, but the but like they just leap out. Like he says, you know, because basically what he did for the first twenty years of his career, he was one of the best sort of traditional teachers in the world. You know, master. You know, you know, we talked about all his credentials. Like he was one of the best. And then yeah, he PGA PGA of America Teacher of the Year, teacher of the all year, that and, stuff. Yeah. And 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 so no one knew more about how to try and communicate words into golf swings than Michael Hebron, and then he had this epiphany that this was wrong, and then he went back to school and Harvard and MIT and all this research that he's done, and then he became kind of this Zen guy, and um, when he says in his book, there, you cannot describe in words, your your brain doesn't hear or you you can't tell your muscles how to move. And, and it's very Tim O'Connor. Now, one of the things I, where I think you, not that you are different, but when Tim talks about your body knows, the way Michael would put that is your brain knows what to do. You just have to give your body permission to just do it. I know it sounds, I'm not, I'm not describing it well, but fill in some blanks for me if you can. Well, I, it was so cool uh, just for... <laughs> Mike Hebron uh, is—he's—he's he's one of those guys. He's a real iconoclast uh, in terms of going against the golf culture, right. and he's—he's he's really part of like Fred Shoemaker, uh, Carl Morris to some degree. Um, really, kind of looking at you know a possible paradigm shift away from this fix it, do it right type of thing, and. Um, so it was so cool to, to get your text and from the Turks and Caicos. I was like, holy crap, I can't believe it. You know, I'm uh, doing I'm in love with Mike Hebron and all that yeah. stuff. I wanna go so, I wanna go be his apprentice. This is what I want. <laughs> this is what I want to be. Exactly. Can I study under you and exactly, wear a robe? Right. But will yep. you shave your head too? Absolutely. I feel like uh, you know, I've just been uh, like he's Obi he's Yoda and Obi Wan. <laughs> And I just want to go, like, uh, work uh, at his golf course and just uh, observe him. Wasn't it B or uh, there is no try, whatever that exactly. piece? Um, yeah. So Hebron, just – so to me, the connection that I make is that um, the mind and the, and the body are basically the same, the same thing. What the problem that guys like Hebron and Shoemaker have centered on is that what we're trying to do is use this brain – to run this this million dollar body and it just with the ego mind of like trying to we're going to try and do it right we're going to try to adhere to some kind of model uh i hit that shot it was a bad shot i you know it fixed me i have a bad golf swing all that type of stuff and what what hebron particular is saying is just allow yourself to learn the game That's and you right. do that through playing the game, you learn it from your own experience. That's my well. That, 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 well, and that—that's very that your own experience is um, one of the things Hebron talks about is coming to golf with the idea that you know there are there are things we've all done in the past, whether it's play hockey or throw a ball or play tennis or any number of things that are applicable to the golf swing. The problem with the way the game is taught, and, and Tim and I, we go back 
70 podcasts talking about the guru model. And even though we talked about it, I still believe that there was somebody out there that could give me the information I need that could turn me into a plus two handicap. And uh, what Hebron says is, uh, you already know how to do that. You know, he, he talks about, you know, one of the first things I picked out for you because this is so much the guru model broken. He says, avoid how-to instruction, which is an order from the mind of one person, the instructor, right. to the mind of the other person, which is the student. And so what it does is that kind of instruction creates its own stress. If you tell me that at position three, halfway back, my forearm needs to be in this position, and then every time it's not, I see that as failure, then of course, playing golf as a sport, like the game of self, if I'm... If I'm thinking about, wow, if I don't get my forearm at position three in the right spot, then I'm not doing it right. Then what I'm missing is that every shot is unique and that every situation on a golf course is an opportunity to create your own thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm telling you, like, it was, rev- what's the word, rev- not revelatory to me that... I had a revelation? Re- yes. It was an, an epiphanical moment. I just made that up. It I like was, that. But it, Eureka. The, the, it, I had so many of those moments because I've spent my lifetime stressed out over not doing it right. You know, from a, from a mankind project standpoint, I'm some guy hoping that golf will pat me on the head and go, good job, Howard. Way to spend all those hours trying to get this perfect. The fact is I've played some of my best golf the last couple of years by not being completely perfect at my swing. I mean, I make a lot of, I make a lot of, I make a, enough good enough swings, but rather than chase this mythical perfection, Hebron's book kind of reminded me that playing the game is kind of, you know, Tim, I've had a lot of instruction, so have you, but over the last couple of years, all the big gains I've made in my golf game have come from me. I'm not, and I'm, I'm not being braggadocious. I'm just telling you, all those hours I spend hitting pitch shots and chip shots with the dog are where I've learned the most about the game. And, and Hebron's just saying, you know, that's where you're supposed to learn it. It's supposed right. to be, here's a couple of, as he says, here's a couple of in the ballpark notions. You know, he has, he calls it the, the, the rules of, uh, the, the rules of golf or, or the, the, the laws of golf. Right. There's, there's only a couple of them. But basically, once you get some of the basics down, the rest is for you to discover, which I think is, as you say, he's an iconoclast. Not a lot of people want to hear that. They want to say, okay, here's where you need to be at position three. This is where your pressure points need to be. And that's all good and well. But when it comes to playing the game, you're supposed to play it. And uh, I know that sounds like, uh, I don't know what that sounds like. But it's that was, but that was awesome stuff uh, about how you basically it bolstered your own experience that you've had the last few years right. in terms of like, you know, we all tend to, to look around. Like I hear so every once in a while, I hear something, I'll read something in golf dies. You go, really? Mm-hmm. I'll try. I'll have to try that. And I just go like, wow, I'm right back into that old pattern of, of, I need to find, here's the thing. I need to do it right. It just feeds into that perfectionist shadow that still dogs me. Um, because the the key problem is that that people have in, in particularly in golf is that as soon so what happens is, is if you don't hit that position three and you you're, you're making a judgment right. as soon as you start making judgments you learning stops learning absolutely stops because you're not in your own experience you're not even aware what you're doing you can't feel what's going on you're you totally tend to be in your head because you've got this sense of Here's the model. This is perfection. This is what I'm supposed to do. I am not meeting it. So generally what happens is you go to all kinds of places. Well, I guess I haven't tried hard enough or I need to try more. And if you go down a few layers, it's like, well, gosh, I guess I just don't have the talent. Uh, I never had the time invested. I always had to work. Uh, My dad was right or the phys ed ed coach said that you're, you know, O'Connor, you'll never – you'll never amount to anything because you're just not a very good athlete. None of which is, which is all just horseshit. It is. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from our friend, uh, Mark Evershed as soon as I can find it. Cause I'll tell you that the, the guy that is sort of the, the Hebron model of teaching is to be 
in in and as more of a coach, more of a more more to help you discover, you know, what you can Absolutely. do versus you know, trying to tell you this is because even the best instructors and I've had some of the best as as you have. Basically, you're still being told this is what you need to do in order to fix your swing when and again, I've played golf my whole life with the idea that I'm broken somehow and if I could just fix my swing, then I wouldn't be so broken in the game of golf. And in actual fact, I'm not. I mean, I like I said the other day on the phone, like last summer, you know, a lot of my good rounds, I'm averaging 12 and 13, sometimes 14 greens in regulation. How much That's better? PGA Tour. That's how much PGA better Tour. Do I, yeah, and I said to you, how much better do I need to hit it? Like seriously. Um, and yet I'm still, you know, thinking, well, if I could just hit 16 greens... It's ridiculous. <clears throat> so here's here's Mark's quote, and I'm going to give you two quotes, one from Mark and one from Hebron, and you can see how close they are. So here's what Mark said. He says, if the ball is not going to your target, it's because what you're doing is wrong. It's not that you have the correct information, but you can't do it. It's the information you have that isn't correct, or you're not doing what you think you are. And... He's so right. What Hebron said is when you top a ball, it's not that you've made a mistake. It's that you've made the perfect swing to top a ball or yes. hit it fat or have it pull hook left. And and what Mark is saying, it's like, you know, we all think that, well, well, I guess we're just not smart enough or we're just not good enough or we just can't do this. It's that the way the information was given to us is not workable anymore. Right. Where, where I struggle a little bit with about the, the notion of information is, is that it's an intellectual pursuit. It's, it's a concept. And to me, what, where I, uh, why I connect with Hebron is, this, is, is that it's, it's learning from what our, our body does. And it's being, so as opposed to trying to take a concept of saying, hitting, hitting down with the ball with my right wrist hinged uh if i go into that thinking i'm trying to do that i think in essence i'm getting in the way of what my body can do no and i, and I don't want to interrupt you but that's not what i, I think you're missing the point of what, I, what mark's trying to say is that you're not broken your notion of how this is because here's what i was going to say here's the hebron quote hebron says workable instruction doesn't try to change poor habits it changes poor insights and develops patterns of access to knowledge which is kind of what mark's saying that you know if you're not if it's if you're not if your swing isn't doing what you want it to do it's not because you're bad it's because right. your your instruction your notions your ideas your insights have been developed poorly over time and all hebron is saying basically that it's not you you're, you have the capacity to learn this thing. You know, I, I've been thinking a lot about this recently. In 2003, September, I took my first lesson in flying. 16 hours later, my instructor got out of the plane and I soloed for the first time. So imagine that. In 16 hours of instruction, I landed an airplane. You don't think it's tougher to do that than hit a freaking golf ball? Like, seriously. <laughs> Like so why can't so then that I was like, oh, yeah, you know, because I was basically taught not letter perfect. It was just like these are some, you know, yes, you have to be believe me, landing an airplane is a lot easier than most people think. But there's a technique to it now mm -hmm. in 16 hours. So I've been doing golf what for 47 years and still didn't think I got it right. But that's the thing I like about this book is that the notion is there is no right. There is just. You know, as he says, I love the notion, he says, play with the idea. Play with the idea that, that there are some different ways to approach this. And that's why I would recommend the book. Well, I say, I, well, the, the thing that connects to me is it's about learning from your own experience. Yes, to relying on your own experience. Right, and, and, and so it, it's, and that is part of the whole notion of rather of feeling it as opposed to thinking about it yes and uh, just and just being present to that experience like it, so one of the things that um i work with a, a lot of my players is is swinging at 
a speed in which you can actually feel what's going on. And so a lot of players are just kind of, you know, can you hit the, we'll start, they'll start hitting the ball and, and I say, what are you swinging at? Well, 80%. Okay, let's try 70, 60, getting it down to 40. And sometimes like down to like 10 where they feel like they're going in slow motion. But when you start to do that, you can actually feel what's going on. And then you can start to make some pretty cool insights when you, then you start to see, oh my gosh, when that happens, you know, let's say for example, I remember the time it was, after, this is interesting to me, after an, uh, a conversation I had with Mark Evershed, and he was talking about how the shaft leans forward. And I remember just chipping in my basement, and I was, it wasn't like I had um, consciously tried to hit the ball with the shaft leaning forward, but I hit a ball and it was like, Eureka. I, it was like, holy cow, I felt that. I could sense it in the, in the solid hit, what came up through my hands, and I got it. And, 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 but I experienced it. And I think that's the thing is that we could take this, we could take some information, we could take what other people could, we've heard other people say, but it's making it our own. That to me is, is, is kind of a connecting piece for all of this is whatever we hear, we make it our own. And we do that through our own experience and being present and, and open to that as opposed to trying to fit some kind of model. And I love what you're saying about, I think you, what your own experience just uh, parallels, I would say so many people in golf is that they believe that they're inadequate, that they are broken, that they didn't, they, you know, they're somehow a loser in the, in the, in the gene pool. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. One of the things Hebron says early on that the first three or four chapters of the book have very little to do with golf. I mean, they're, it's from a background of golf, but he really talks a lot about how the brain learns. Right. And um, last summer, I remember saying on one of the shows that I had this revelation that golf is a thing you can't do while thinking about how to do, which is basically what Hebron is saying, that the mind can't, you know, whatever your swing thought is that day, you're, you really, it can't do that. Words don't, the, as he said, muscles don't hear words bodies right. you know when you know we've talked about this before you know um you know if i'm throwing a, a, a rolled up wad of paper into a wastebasket, you know across the room you and i could do this all day and we'd just be okay that one was a little short that one was a little long that one had this arc we would just notice those things but none no, at no point would i go tim where's my elbow here as i throw this and and i think what golfers myself included have to get their heads around is I have all the skills I kind of need because I've played around with it. I just didn't realize that's what I should be doing while I'm playing. I mean, I, I've, I've come to that more in the last couple of years. My friend Paul Henrik one day on the range said to me, you know, hit me a low draw, hit a high cut, and I can do all those things. And he said, now go do that in the golf course. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I said, what? He goes, yeah, that's golf. Because literally every shot I hit now, whether I say it out loud or I do it in my head, I say, okay, I'm going to hit a, a little soft draw here. Because it's like the, the, it, like if I wanted to, as a Hebra, you know, there's too much. Like I could throw a ball to you in any number of ways all day long and never think about how to do it. I just go, well, this is what I do. Yeah. And so could you. And so could most of us. You know, Absolutely. When, when I was watching you this summer, and I think about this guy very often. He's one of your clients. I won't say his name. He was having some trouble chipping. And uh, you were helping him. And then I helped him. And then Trachilio helped him. And then everybody helped him. The uh, the cart girl was giving him tips once. I saw. <laughs> you, know, you know, just I, and I, and I oh, feel yeah. for the guy because he was in a bit of a rut when it came to the chipping. And... Um, and I realize now looking back on it is because he was trying to synthesize our instruction to help him with his whatever issue he had when really he knows how to chip. He's a good golfer. It's just like he doesn't think he does anymore. You know, he doesn't. Right. He thinks there's a, a, a phrase or a certain shaft thing or something. But in actual fact, he already knows. I've seen him. He already knows how to do it. He's but he hasn't. But the problem that that I, and I think I know who you're talking about is that 
he's not allowing himself to self-discover. Right. He's not allowing him to coach himself. <clears throat> right. And that to me is where we start to make gain insights and 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 achieve mastery in in anything is when we're able to just discover what we have in ourselves. It's like uh, I don't know. It's, uh, so we think of like Don Cherry, like he's the reason. One of the reasons Don Cherry has become an icon in hockey and entertainment is because there's nobody else like him. He discovered what his unique offerings were from his own traits, his character, his personality. He didn't try to achieve any kind of model. I mean, if you wanted to describe something that looked like amateurish and chaotic, it would be like coach's corner. <laughs> You know, the squabbling that they do and yeah. everything. But but he discovered his own uniqueness and he went with it. And I, I think there's interesting parallels in all other kinds of ways around that is is being open to our own experience and just trying it out and, and seeing what happens and and not being so judgmental about, you know, how do I compare uh, you know, where should I be? You know, I've been playing golf for this long. I should be at this level and I should have won this and that. As immediately as we start to do that, we just cut ourselves off from our ability to experience ourselves. Well, and and um, just to, I mean, I know we have to go at some point here. Um, yeah. I can tell you, so, <laughs> you know, I've been working on my game this winter more than I have um in several years, just because I wanted to stay. I, I mean, part of it is I love it. Part of it is I wanted to see, you know, if I could work on it and would I come out in the spring, you know, being a little bit, you know, more up to speed when it comes to tournaments. But one of the things Hebron says is the golf swing is only 10%. This is a guy that was once the, considered one of the top, he still is, one of the top teachers on the planet. And here's what he said. He said the golf swing is only 10% of the game. And he said most people spend 90% of their time working on something, the swing. You know, yeah, the short game, the putting, but all that, the fitness, the glutes, get you know, all that stuff is what goes into it. And I can tell you, um, you know, I haven't played on a golf course since early December. And now to bring this full circle. So I played last week on uh, Wednesday it was one of the windiest days I've played golf, and I play at Glencairn. And I, um, playing with rental clubs, I shot 74. I'm only giving the number just to give you some perspective. So I shoot 74, but the first nine holes I play, I haven't played golf in three months, and I shoot even par, um, hitting knocked down four irons and hot, you know, it was crazy playing with rental clubs. And just in because I was just all in this mode of this is going to be fun and I'm playing and I'm going to see what I can do. And I, I played fine, you know. And then two days later, as, I, as I've told you, I start off. It, now it's completely calm. And this golf course is mint. And I start off, I birdie four of the first seven holes. And then I sink a long putt on nine to shoot my lowest nine-hole score ever. Wow. For, and, and and by the way, with no swing thoughts. And I mean yeah. all, virtually none. I had some feels on shots. If I wanted to cut it, I'd feel it. Then I'd, And one of the things Hebron said, and Nick told me this years ago, a couple years ago, over the ball, no words. Like he exactly. said, once you get, like, you know, you can do whatever your feel is for the shot. But Hebron says, you get over the ball, you can no longer use words. You just have to look at the target, feel what you want to do, and do it. So there I go. I shoot five under par. I've never done that for nine holes. Five under par. That's wild, man. It was wild. In the, middle of, in the middle of winter, when you would think, like, you know, my, my swing, my motion is caked with rust. Exactly. I'm using borrowed clubs, a borrowed putter. Uh, decent, you know, I'm, I'll give them credit. Decent uh, rental clubs, Titleist. And, um, and uh, but, you know, not, you know, I've never seen these clubs before. I shoot 31 on nine holes. Back nine, had a couple sloppy bogeys, but as I told you on the phone, I still stayed aggressive. I wasn't, like, backing off. I had birdie putts the last four holes that, you know, all were around the hole. Eight, 10, 15-foot putts. End up shooting 69. In the middle of winter, I haven't been under par. I mean, I sure, I was under par in December, but I haven't been in the 60s um, in a year. But there I was just going around a golf course I'd never seen before. And it was like, oh, this is cool. And I wasn't nervous and I wasn't scared and I didn't think I didn't deserve it. 
But I was just kind of like, well, this is my golf swing. It's pretty good. I'm going to hit a bunch of greens, and I just had some putts go in the hole. It was weird. That's that's so cool, and it's so ironic that uh, the guy who's the co-host of a show called Swing Thoughts had no swing thoughts. Mm. <laughs> Virtually no, none. And going back to Yoda, there was no trying, you know. No. But so so it, so just to connect the book, uh, just to give people a taste of uh, Hebron's writing. Like as you were saying, he says most people concern themselves with their golf swing, and it, and. So Hebron, in this book, he goes, many golf ideas deal with form. And he goes on to say, form is confining without feel. And feel is unreliable without form. What he's getting to is here, there's a balance that the player has to find. So self-discovery. And here's the piece that comes out. He writes it in bold. He goes, fortunately, balance is found in a swing that unconsciously swings itself. That's right. That's what Mo used to say. Mo used to say, my swing balances me. Exactly. Yes. So so swing thought people, um, you've got what it takes. You've yeah. already got a golf swing that's within you. So your challenge is to self-discover it. He says, information does not produce good learning any more than paint produces good art. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we leave it there? We're at an hour. Yeah, well, it's so good one. So, we got to get Mr. Hebron back yes. on our show soon. Yeah, I um, yeah, I, I again, I I keep thinking uh, that day we recorded all those interviews. I, I didn't really know who he was, and uh, yeah, but I'm going to go back and listen to it. I encourage others to do it. Tim O'Connor, uh, where do we find you? Uh, well, my website is O'ConnorGolf.ca, and uh, yeah, just go there. You know. Blogs and books and all kinds of stuff. Blogs, books, and stuff. Oh, and uh, workshops. Yeah, I do workshops. workshops. Uh, you can go to uh, humbleandfredradio.com and find out more about uh, what we're doing. And um, we just started broadcasting on Twitch TV. Uh, go look that up. On, until next time, thanks to uh, TaylorMade, Adidas, and uh, everyone at the Provo uh, Golf Course in Turks and Caicos. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Howard. See you later, man. Yeah, man. Bye. Competition in other places But the horns, they blow in that sound